Well, good morning. Take your Bible and turn to John 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. As you turn there, you will notice that, um, I guess it depends on what Bible you might be holding, but in my copy I have here, um, most of this chapter is in red letters. And we're going to see that this is a prayer of Christ. And as I just meditated on all 26 verses this week, um, I was thinking, what must it have been like to stand there and actually hear Jesus pray? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Think of the most godly person you know or the most godly prayers you've ever heard prayed. And then multiply that by infinity, I would imagine. To hear the Son of God pray to his Father must have been quite an experience for the disciples. There's never been a vo voice as holy as his, and there's never been a prayer more rightly spoken than the prayers of Christ. And in John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer from Jesus. And so the title of my sermon today and this next few weeks is The Greatest Prayer Ever Prayed. I want you to remember before we dive into it that Christ had just had the Lord's Supper. He, had, he is teaching these disciples. He's giving them some final instructions before he would go to the cross. And now in these final moments, he is, you know, there, there are no more miracles coming right here. There are no more um, large gatherings of people to be taught right here. There is a few hours before the cross. And Spurgeon said this, Jesus poured out his soul and life before he poured it out unto death. So let's hear Christ here pour out his soul in prayer to his Father. We're going to read the entire chapter, but we're only going to have a sermon today on the first five verses. But I want you to hear it in its fullness. If you found John 17, verse 1, say word. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept my, thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, 
for they are mine. They are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit's help, guide us through this text, just these first five verses, as we attempt to mine for gold that, um, that we might find some blessings, some truths that might encourage us in our Christian walk. And Father, that someone sitting here today might see the truth of the cross for the first time. Guide us, have your will in your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to first point your attention as we dive into these first five verses to verse one and notice a couple of introductory thoughts here um, before we get into to our points. But the first one is, notice Jesus' posture of prayer. In, in verse one, it says, he spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. I want to make at least a little small note of this that that's not typically our posture of prayer, is it? How do we typically pray? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there anything wrong with that? I hope not, because I've been doing it my whole life. There's not, right? I like the idea of closing my eyes. It takes away distractions. I like the idea of bowing my head. I see that, I see that as reverence toward, toward God. 
But all Jesus is doing here is praying in the customary way they would pray in his day, which would often be looking up to the heavens, looking up to his Father. We can pray, by the way, with various types of posture, can't we? The important thing is not our posture in prayer, not the posture of our body. The important thing is the posture of our hearts as we approach God in prayer. So I would encourage you to pray when you're kneeling. Kneel, kneel and pray. Stand and pray. Pray with your head bowed. Pray with your eyes to the heavens at times. Pray with different postures. Um, the heart is what matters. The second thing I want you to see is when he says, the first thing Jesus says here, Father, the hour is come. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, we've heard Jesus say, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now he says to the Father, my hour has come. What hour is he talking about? We know, don't we? He's talking about his death, sacrificing his life for sinners. A third thing I notice as far as introductory points here uh, is the closeness of the Father and the Son. And I see it from verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter in 24 and 25 when he continues to talk about, he calls the Lord his Father. And it shows us this close, this, the, the rich, deep relationship between the Son of God and God the Father. A relationship which we can't fully ever comprehend or grasp. The relationship between the triune God. But I want you to see here, there's a closeness here that we, we need to just examine it and, and look at as we study these first five verses. So let me give you four main points that I think will hopefully highlight uh, this text and get us started in the study of John 17. The first point is this. Notice that the cross, the hour which Jesus is coming to, glorifies the Son. In verse 1 he says, Father, the hour has come, and his very first petition or request of God is this, glorify your Son. Glorify me, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And here's what I think that means when Jesus says, glorify your son, I think he's saying this, Father, when I lay down my life, reveal to everyone there, everyone watching, that I truly am who I've been saying I am. Because people have been watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, some have been taking in what he's saying, some of course reject him, but he's saying, Father, in this hour when I suffer and die, would you reveal the truth of who I am to everyone around. Would you reveal that truth? Let this sacrifice, if I put this, maybe some different words here, let this sacrifice be sufficient. A sufficient means to show people that I truly am the Son of God. Look at verse 4 as we skip down there, because here in verse 4, Jesus says, Father, I've glorified you on earth. I've glorified you. And then he says, I think this is interesting, I've finished the work that you've gave us me to do. Now, at this point, had Jesus actually finished the work? Not quite yet, right? Because he's not at the cross yet or the empty tomb yet. But in Jesus' mind, it was as good as done, wasn't it? Was Jesus ever going to back away from his mission? No. He was always going to fulfill that mission. And so it's his mind, it's done. And so I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Notice that Jesus had been glorified in his life. Certainly, as Jesus performed miracles, as people talked about him doing great things, he was, he was highlighted, he was glorified by some, although not everyone. And so now we see that none of those earthly 
life of Christ things glorified him as much as his death. His death becomes the ultimate glory he can experience. Well, look at verse 5. As we think about the Son of God being glorified through his death, in verse 5, Jesus says, Glorify me with your own self, with the glory I had with you before the world. Now, if you read that verse and think about that verse, only two people can say that verse. All right? The first person is the Son of God, or God Himself. The second person is an insane person. That's it. Who could stand up and say, Father, glorify me. I was with you before the foundation of the world, and I was with you in glory. Who can say that? That's a weird thing to say unless you're Jesus Christ, in which case he is speaking deep truth for us to, to think on. We know he existed in eternity past, and in that triune state, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, experienced just glory. And I, I want to point, we won't turn there, but Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48, if you're taking notes, jot those down. In Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48, in those two ver chapters, God says, I am Yahweh, and I will not share my glory with anyone. I will not share my glory with another. I alone am worthy of glory, and I do not give it or share it. And yet Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to share that glory. So for him to say that, he must truly be God. So he prays, Father, glorify me again in the way I was glorified with you in the, before the foundation of the world. The next thing I see here, back in verse 1, when he says glorify your son, is that he prayed to be glorified uh, specifically through his death. The purpose for which he came, the glory of the cross. That's a weird, I wrote that phrase in my notes and I thought, that's weird. The glory of the cross. Because to the world, was the cross a glorious thing? To the world, it was a criminal's death. It was humiliation. It was, you know... You walk by and see someone on a cross, you would immediately think terrible of them, right? That's, that's you know. But to, for Christ, for God's purposes, it was not for humiliation. It was for glory. So I wrote this. There's no glory in a sinner's cross, but there is ultimate glory in the Savior's cross. That we could see God use the cross as an instrument of glorification. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the word First Corinthians 1.18 says for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The cross is folly, it's humiliation, it's shame to the world but to us it is glory. There's glory in his death, there's glory in his resurrection, there's glory in his ascension, verse 5. So just for Jesus to pray this way is right. For Jesus to say, Father, glorify your son is right. Would it be right for us to pray this way? Should we pray, Father, glorify me? I've never prayed like that, I hope. I don't think I have. Surely we would not do that. How should we pray, though? Should we pray for our glory or his? I remember years ago when I was in Bible college and seminary, 
I was around a lot of good men, good guys and ladies, and um, had a lot of good experiences with them. But, and it, it seemed like it was more prevalent back then, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about, when churches had big revivals more often, maybe once a year, twice a year. Uh, I, I one time went to a church that had a revival for over a year. Um, just a constant revival thing. And so, um, anyway, a lot of my friends and people I knew, they had a very strong desire to preach revival services. And some of them were, I think, gifted at that. They could go and preach those services and kind of shake a church up and then leave. Uh, your former pastor, I think, was really gifted at that. Uh, I've been to some of those revivals where he would go, and, and y'all wouldn't believe it. He'd preach an hour and a half um, at these revival services. But he'd really shake the church up. But on Friday, you know, we're leaving, <laughs> you know. I think preachers like that. I'm not picking on him. I'm saying I think a lot of preachers like that because uh, you, you don't have to deal with what happens afterwards, right? <laughs> you preach, preach what you want to preach, and then you leave and go, to, go down the road to another church. Now, some people are gifted that maybe, and, 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 but I know people that wanted to preach revivals. They wanted to speak at conferences. And, and I remember even then, as a young 20-something-year-old person, thinking, are these guys doing this to truly glorify God, or are they doing this to try to build their own kingdom? Their own, their own stuff, for their own purposes. So church, I encourage us, as we consider the prayer of Christ, glorify thy son, may that be our prayer as well. Not ever glorify me, but Father, glorify your son, the glorious Christ. So was this prayer of Jesus in verse 1, was it answered? Yes, right? It was answered as he gave his life. So how... Does the cross glorify the Son? It shows Him to be the God-man and the sufficient Savior for all who would believe. As we think here about glorifying Christ, I want to give you this illustration. I've used it before. But imagine you're driving down the highway and you have a four-year-old child with you. So imagine there's a four-year-old child in the back seat and you see a water tower in the distance and you say to that child, hey, how big is that tower? And he looks out, and he's like, well, it's not that big. And he said, well, take your fingers. Take your index finger and put it to the top of the tower and your thumb to the bottom of the tower. How big is that tower? And he says, well, it's about that big. Is that a very big tower? Not a very big tower. Not very impressive. But let's say you keep driving. You drive five more miles. You come up to where the tower is. You pull over. You get out. You take the child. You walk up to the tower, and you say, now how big is the tower? And what does he do? He looks up at this huge tower, and he's like, it's really big. Right? So what's the difference between this and standing and looking up at the big tower? You see, what, what has happened is you've got him closer to the tower, and as he gets closer to it, he sees the truth of what it really is. And he's like, wow, that's a big tower. I can't wait to get home and tell mom how big and awesome this tower is up close. And that's an illustration to, to show how we should glorify the sun, that we get close enough to see him and savor him and see who he really is. Is it possible that we as Christians almost purposely keep a distance from God so that we don't have to deal with certain things in our lives, like sin, for example? Is that possible? Is it possible that we keep a certain distance from him because we're afraid if we get too close to Christ, we might have to change some things or we might have to act in some ways we don't want to act? that would be better for us? Is it possible we keep a distance? Well, church, we will never glorify the Son the way we need to 
if we're not getting close to him through his word and prayer and through the church. Let's glorify the son. The second thing I, I notice in this chapter or in these verses, not only does the cross glorify the son, but the cross glorifies the father. You see, because Jesus says, Father, glorify your son that so that I might glorify you. And in verse 4, he says, I've glorified you on earth. Now let me glorify you again with my death. Again, Jesus does not pray selfishly here. He prays rightly that the work he does on the cross would bring ultimate glory to the Father. There's a teacher and a writer named D.A. Carson, and Carson has a great commentary on the book of John. Carson says, It will bring no glory to the Father if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not acceptable, or if the Son is not restored to his rightful place in the presence of the Father's unshielded glory. That would mean the divine mission had failed and the purposes of grace forever defeated. But Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. It was right. It was sufficient. It was good. And so there the Father is glorified. If the, if the, if the cross did not happen, if Christ never didn't follow through with it, then the plan of God would have failed. And the purposes of God, the wisdom of God, could have been questioned by people. But the fulfillment of the cross proved the wisdom of the Father. So how does the cross glorify him? It shows him to be just. It shows him to be loving all at the same time. Let's again apply this to ourselves. What are some ways that we should be glorifying the Father? Certainly, Jesus did in, in everything he did, his words, his actions, his attitudes. How should we be glorifying the Father? Well, think about your prayer life. Have you ever prayed, Father, give me the promotion I want at work, that I might use that promotion to glorify you? Is that a good prayer? What do y'all think? Father, give me that promotion at work so that if, if I get that promotion, I will glorify you with it. Is that a good prayer? I think it's fine. I think it's fine. Father, bless me with health and strength that I might glorify you with my health and strength. Is that a good prayer? I think that's fine. Father, bless me with uh, this relationship trouble I'm having with a spouse or a child or a friend. Bless, help me and, and mend this relationship that I might glorify you with it. Is that a good prayer? I think it is. But here's an even better prayer. Father, if I don't get that promotion, I'm going to glorify you anyway. If I don't get health and strength, if my health from here to I die is on a downhill skid, I'll glorify you anyway. If my relationship falls apart, as hard as that might be, Father, help me to glorify you no matter what. That's the perspective of prayer that we need when we see this. Father, glorify thy name. Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. Church, I pray our perspective on prayer and on life is that whatever happens to me and in me and through me, God receives the glory from it. The third thing about the cross here, in verse 3, which by the way, our children's Sunday school class did verse 3 today. A very good job. I think Aubrey did this 
uh, where's Aubrey? Oh, there you are, Aubrey. Um, as they learn, John 17, 3 today, and, oh, I jumped ahead of myself. <sighs> Hold on, I'll do that again in a minute. I'm in verse 2. I'm going to skip verse 2. It's point 3, verse 2. The cross ensures the salvation of God's elect. So look at verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So the Father gives Jesus authority, and again, another statement of his deity, and we see it throughout the Gospel of John, but in particular, verse 2 is speaking on the authority Christ has over salvation. And this is, I think, fairly plain and obvious as you read this verse. It says that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So who does Christ give eternal life to, according to this verse? All those that the Father gives him. If the Father does not give someone to Christ, do they get eternal life, according to this verse? No. Those whom the Father gives the Son. As I preach the next part of this, of point three, um, in every church I've ever served until now, I could not preach this. The things I'm about to say to you, I could not or would not say these things uh, because I would probably be fired. I'm just being honest. As a matter of fact, before I came to be your pastor, I had met with another church uh, and had a two-hour interview with a search committee that went amazing. I mean, I like the people. They like me. We, for two hours, we sat in this room and talked about the church and the word some. And... And I went home, told my wife, you know, I feel really good about this situation. And I got a call a few days later. The man said, well, we're going to go a different direction. We don't, we don't want to talk to you anymore. I was like, that's fine, you know, but can I ask why? Like, that's, I thought it went so great. We talked for over two hours. I thought it went great. And I said, well, we just found out there's some things you believe that we just don't really line up and believe with. I said, I got you. I said, do you want to talk about it? No, not really. We're just going to move on. I knew what he was talking about, by the way. I was like, that's fine, that's, that's fine. And by the way, it worked out for me, in my opinion, for sure. Um, because I'll just be honest with you. And even if, at the next few things I say, I want you to understand it. I didn't understand it till my late 20s, but I want you to understand it. But I don't care if it gets me fired anymore. I got too old and too committed to seeing the truth. That doesn't matter. But I want you to understand it. I'm not trying to be, make a conflict, but I want you to see what I think is truth from Scripture. It's like one time I had a pastor who, he sat in a Wednesday night meeting, and somebody said, an adult asked a question. He said, Pastor, um, what's the Bible say about God's elect? And he said, well, that's not in the Bible. And I was sitting in the back looking at my Bible, and I was like, what? The Word itself is in the Bible Tons of times, many times. I don't know if it's hundreds, but it's plenty of times. And he, he refused to look at a subject. And so it made me think deeper about these things and, and to study my Bible and to study all the verses, not just John 3.16, which I love, but to study all the texts of Scripture and to see what it says. And one thing I want you to see is this verse, verse 2, as we've seen throughout John, over in John 6 and John 10 and other places in John, we've seen this truth. We've talked about it. 
But I want you to see and know that in the church today, there are these rival theologies that people conflict over, and I hold a view that's in the minority, and I know some of you hold the same view. But I want to share it with you for a moment here. And one part of that view is something called limited atonement or definite atonement or particular redemption. And here's what it says. It says that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the elect. And if anyone believes, they will be saved. And if they don't believe, they won't be saved. But it says this. The death of Christ is sufficient to save all people. Listen closely. If anyone will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. You got that part? Here's part two. Only those whom God has called and whom God regenerates and whom God makes born again and grants the gift of faith will be saved. So God's grace is sufficient to save all, but watch this, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ is efficient to only save those who will believe. Meaning that Christ's blood is enough to save anyone, but only those who believe will be saved. I'm just saying the same thing over and over again to see if you're getting it. It took me a while to understand these things. The prevailing view in the church today is that Jesus died for everyone, and he's sitting there waiting and hoping, like a poor person, that they'll, they'll come to him. That's the prevailing view of my life for the first 27 years of my life, and that's the prevailing view of most of the churches I know of today. But I think the prevailing view, the, the main view, I think, of Scripture and of Christian history is that salvation does not depend primarily on our decision to choose Christ, but salvation depends primarily on the sovereign grace of God to choose his people. And to me, that's what, what part of this verse says. That he should give eternal life to who? As many as thou hast given him. There are verses like John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, and I love that verse. Me and my girls have quoted that verse with each other more than any other verse. I love that verse. But the same John that wrote that over in John 10 said this, Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. That same John wrote in chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus said, all the Father gives me will come to me. And in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. How about Matthew 1, 21? Another gospel writer said, Jesus died to save his people from their sins. I'll have so much more to say about this. We'll just have a, dis a big discussion Wednesday night. If you can make it, that'll be an interesting discussion. But um, I have so much more to say. But the whole purpose of it, the reason I think this is important, just I'm, I'm leaving my notes here just to talk to you for a minute. The reason I think this is important is when I come to see this as truth, that I had zero to do with my salvation. I brought nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. When I come to realize this truth, it changed the way I view everything about the word and church and life. To see that the sovereign grace of God is bigger and greater than anything in man. We see that salvation from start to finish depends on him. I have no right to boast. 
There should be zero inkling in my soul, in my heart, that I deserve to be saved. The cross, the hour Jesus is talking about here, that we're going to see here in a few chapters, ensures that God's people will come to him. There's a Christian writer named Shaolin, and he says, worst of all, if you say that the atonement of Christ is unlimited, he says, you're saying the cross by itself doesn't save, that we must do something to give the cross its power. That means at the end of the day, the glory is ours. He said, that's man-centered thinking, and it's not recommended. The cross will save all for whom it was intended. Because for the elect, God's wrath was satisfied. Look, at the end of the day, this is about giving God the maximum amount of glory. Know what I'm saying? We proclaim a cross that actually saves, not make salvation possible, but actually saves. Matthew 1, 21, his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not might save them, not try to save them. No, he will actually save them. It is a definite atonement. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant he paid for the sins of all those who would believe. That's not all I want to say, but we'll go to point four. Point number four, our last point. John 17, 30. I appreciate all our ladies that work with our children. And was this Michelle this morning? Michelle or Brent? Okay. Uh, teaching them this verse. In verse 3, Jesus says, And this, speaking of whom he gives life to, this is eternal life, that thou, that thou might know thee, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Sometimes we might know people that we might brag about. Um, it seems like the last couple of years, every other week or so, I'll talk to someone and I'll say, I'm originally from Laurel, Mississippi. And what are they, what's the first thing they say to me, you know, the last couple of years? Oh, yeah, you know the show Hometown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always tell the same story. Yeah, I don't know them, but in high school I went to uh, Aaron's house a few times with some fr groups of friends or whatever. But I, I don't even know them really, but I kind of brag about that part. Yeah, I went to her house when she was in high school, whatever. But because you just, there's a connection there. People know the show. You know, it's knowing someone that's semi-famous, I guess. We know people like that. We might be proud to know. We might brag about. But how much more should we brag about knowing God? How much more should we be willing to talk to people and say, I know the Lord. I know the God of the Bible. And the word know here, I want you to look at it. He says, this is eternal life, that, that, that they know you. Two things about this word know. First, it is an intimate word. The Greek word is gnosko, and it speaks of intimacy. The same type of word is used in the Old Testament to talk about husbands and wives knowing each other intimately. And so this word means we're to know God in a close way. Yes, we are saved, we are given to him, and we have life eternal, and there's a closeness we have with God. So, do you know him today? Do you know God? I think there are many people who just know about God, but may not truly know God. The second thing about this word, not only is it intimate, it is a, it's an ongoing word. The, the, the Greek word is in a present subjunctive and it indicates that it's growing experience. 
It's a growing thing. It, it's, again, this is why we come to church. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we encourage each other that our faith might grow in him. That's our desire, by the way. I, I love seeing a good crowd of people here today, and I want to see more people here, but my main goal, my main prayer, and I know Jason agrees with me on this, as we've talked about these things, is, is that our, everyone here, that they would grow spiritually, that you would grow spiritually and, and grow to know the Lord. We all would more and more. It's this ongoing knowledge of knowing him. You see, notice, when we think of eternal life, we often just think about heaven, right? Or that eternal stuff we read in, in, the, in the end of the Bible. But strictly speaking, strictly speaking, Jesus says, here's what eternal life is. That they know God. What does that mean? To me, that means if you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are already experiencing a taste of eternal life because you're able to know God through his word and through prayer. This is a precursor to what will be a, a full eternal life. And Jesus says it here. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. And in the book, he said, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? Do you have this problem? I think a lot of us do at times. Knowledge of God, but do we have knowledge about Him, but do we really know Him? Packer said the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. Watch. Turn each truth that you learn about God into a matter of meditation before God. That's pretty good, isn't it? Every truth you read in your daily Bible reading, through our reading up here, our sermons, Take a truth, meditate on it, and through that meditation, that will lead us to praying and praising God. Let me give you a short conclusion, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. As I read these first five verses, I'll tell you what stood out to me. Kind of the, taking a, a look from above at, at the verses. What stood out to me was, In Jesus' worst moments, or greatest time of crisis, as we said last week, to whom did he turn? That's kind of what stood out to me. In his greatest time of need, where did he turn? We're going to see it again in the next chapter. When he goes to the garden to pray. He turned to prayer. As the old writers used to say, he, he flew to God. I like that language. He flew to him. Where should we turn in our greatest time of need? We should pray to the Father. Let's bow.